I was told in seminary that if you can't sleep in church, you are too stiff. <laughs> However, the gospel says otherwise. If you fall asleep and you die, I can't resurrect you, so I can't help you out. So with that, I want to tell you a little story about my, lo my little cousin. She, when she first came to America, she would jump on our beds a lot. She would jump on and jump off, jump on and jump off. And we would tell her, stop jumping on the bed. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. So one day, she jumps. This time, she didn't land on her feet. She landed on her arm. She broke her arm. She came home with a pink, pink cast. And when she went to school for the first time, they tried to sign on her cast. She was like, don't sign my cast, you know, because she didn't understand that that's what you do. When you break your arm or you break something, people sign on your cast. Well, she didn't heed our advice when it talks about not jumping on something or listen to when an adult tells you something. In her little mind, she thinks, I know what's best. I'm going to do what's best. However, Scripture tells us that there's probably a need to heed instruction and correction. And Scripture tells us that, you know, when someone critiques us, gives us correction, there's a need to also comply because that's, that's a blessing from God and that's the way for us to grow spiritually as well and personally. So with that, I'm going to invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 18, verse 13 to 27. Exodus 18, 13 to 27. So for today... We're going to be really sitting in this text. We're going to be spending time in Exodus. So have, if you have a paper copy, have that in front of you, have your phone, kind of flip through all the different uh, scriptural references, but we're really, that's, that's what we're going to be sitting in. It's Exodus chapter 18, verse, 20, verse 13 to 27. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people standing around you from morning to evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and all the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them and the statutes of the law and make them, known, and make them know the way in which they must walk and must do. Moreover, <clears throat> moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and they judged the people at all time. Any hard case they brought 
to Moses. But any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went on. He went away to his own country. So for us today, I want us to learn this: is that constructive correction is a sign of genuine love. Constructive constructive correction is a sign of genuine love. So our first point is this: carrying critique, verses 13 through 18. So let me bring you back a little bit in this chapter. So at the beginning of chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law has just arrived at the camp. Um, Moses, before leaving, leaving to do the work of bringing God's people out of, out of Egypt, he sent his, his wife and his two sons to be with his father-in-law. And they stayed with them. Afterwards, after they were already in the wilderness, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, sends a request, says, hey, I'm going to bring your, your wife and your two kids uh, to you when you are in this, in this wilderness. And you can tell that this father-in-law loves him to, I mean, to take care of his wife and his two kids when he had to do God's thing. That says a lot, right? So then not only that, but also to bring his kids to him after all of this has occurred. So when, whenever Jethro gets there, Moses really shares with them all that God has done, all the amazing things that God has done. And the and look at the way that he meets his father-in-law in verse 7 through verse 7. He says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So you can see there's an admiration between the, the son-in-law and the father-in-law. This is almost like a father and son relationship. Oftentimes we use the word in-laws to, to differentiate to, so other people can see it. But the reality of this is if two people become one, right? Your mother-in-law is also your mother, not really your in-law, but we use this as a description, and your father-in-law is really your father, and it's just, we, we tend to use this, um, but we see this father really loves his son. He comes in, and they greet one another, and his son really loves his father. They go into the tent, and they share about all God's great deed, and after all of this, his father-in-law makes a statement in verse, um, in verse 11, now... Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He knows that the God of Israel is the greatest of all the gods. We don't know from this statement that Jethro really understands that there's only one God. We, we don't see that from the text. We also know that he just knows that God is greater than all the other gods he has ever met, he's encountered. Uh, Jethro being a, uh, a Median priest, he would have believed in multiple gods, multiple worship. So he doesn't really think there is only one God. He just knows that this one God is greater than all of them. So nonetheless, he offers sacrifices to God, maybe as a means to appease God, maybe as a means to not offend this God of Israel, maybe as a means to maybe this God won't punish me because if I don't offer sacrifice to him, we don't fully know why, but he does offer this sacrifice to God. And then Aaron, the high priest, and the rest of the leaders of Israel joins together with him. That really brings us to where we are today in verse 13. So now the father-in-law is in camp. Everyone's probably thinking like, oh man, the father-in-law is in the camp. What shall we do? Uh, but he just sits back. He watches. He watches Moses do his thing. He watches Moses lead the people of Israel in the camp. He just observed. He's not speaking too much. He's just watching uh, graciously. So he, he observes the situation. He sees, if you look in verse 13, that Moses is judging the people. He sits there day and uh, all morning to evening. 
he watches how he's leading the people. And Moses, the way that Moses is sitting, is kind of like a judge, um, more like the Pharaoh. So in Egypt, the Pharaoh would sit on his throne and will make judgment. And there's no account of, of, a, like of a rule book that the Pharaoh would write down. This is how we do things. We just know that there is a, a passing of knowledge somehow, but nothing in written form. It's probably an oral tradition of this Pharaoh did this for this case and things like that. So Moses, you know, being, Egyptian, uh, being Israelite, but really grew up as an Egyptian. He learned and watched how the Egyptians did things. And he was really leading as an, as an Egyptian over the people of God. And so he sits on his throne, he's judging, he's making disputes. And then we see also the people. The people stood in line day in and day out, waiting for her, their case to be heard, spending, spending time in this line to say, hey, uh, Moses, can you hear our case? They probably are wanting their case to be heard, much like when we sit at the DMV, right? We wait in the, at the DMV line, we stand there for a real long time, we get this number and we wait and we wait and we wait. But the thing about the DMV is that your case will be heard that day, but not for the Israelites. Not always. They might have stood there all day, months, and not be heard. Weeks and not be heard. So eventually, they would become frustrated. So then Jethro asked Moses, Moses, uh, what is this that you are doing? Um, why are you doing this in, in, in essence? So Jethro being a Median priest, uh, he was... He was someone who has a lot of leadership experience, a wealth of experience. So when he's really asking the question, he's really asking as a wise leader who has lots of experience to help his young son-in-law on, on how to do this. So these questions really reveals that Jethro is, is about to teach. He's about to teach his son-in-law really how to lead the people of God. So if you look in Proverbs 27, 5, 5 through 6, it says this, Better is, is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So he's about to, to poke a little bit at his son-in-law to help him become a better person because he loves his son-in-law. See, oftentimes we use teaching, and, and the form of teaching that we use is telling. We tell you information. But for them, they ask questions. Question was the way that people learn. They ask really good questions with the intent for you to sit there and discover how, how to learn something, what you are missing, and also for you to reflect and to really contemplate on what you are doing. So if you look in the verses, he asked the question, what is it that you are doing for the people? In other words, he's asking, is your only responsibility as a leader is to serve as a judge? He's poking at his leadership, see? Then he asked, why do you sit alone? Why are you not equipping the people to help you? to walk alongside of you. Then he asked the final question, why do all the people stand around, stand around you from morning to evening? In other words, he's asking, how long do you think it's going to take before the people become frustrated at you for delayed justice? So he's asking these really hard questions that from, from us as modern readers, we just glance at it really quickly and kind of move forward. But he's really creating a thought-provoking uh, thing with inside Moses. So then in verse 15 and 16, Moses has an opportunity to respond to his father-in-law. So Jethro listens to Moses' explanation, and he gives him an opportunity to really to explain himself, but also for Moses to hear his own explanation, to reflect on what he's really saying, what he's really thinking, and how he's going to do this. 
So when Moses is serving as the judge, he serves with three purposes. So you look, look in verse 16. He's looking to inquire of God for God's will, right? He's looking to make wise decisions to dispute between the people of God, and he's looking to teach God's commandments. And, and we see that Moses is someone who is extremely wise, and the way that God speaks to Moses is unlike any other. In Numbers 12, verses 60, 68, says this, and he says, Hear my word. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my houses. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So in this passage, Miriam and, and Aaron are, are kind of like, what's so special about my, my little brother, essentially? Why, why does he get to have all of this? They're kind of nagging at him. And, and here God says, he hears, God hears all of this. And God tells him, look, Moses is a different than any other prophet. He hears me in a way that's so clear. Not in riddles, not in dreams, not in visions. He hears me as someone who's speaking face to face, mouth to mouth. So there's a special way that God speaks to Moses unlike anyone else. So when, when Moses is saying, I'm, the, I'm really inquiring of God, he can really speak to God directly and hear what God's decision is on this. So he's gaining wisdom from above, unlike wisdom from below. And yet, when we move towards 17, verse 17 through 18, Jethro has a very different perspective, which was to offer critique towards Moses. So let me, let me step back a little bit, pause for a second. God speaks to Moses in a very direct way. And yet, here's Jethro being a median priest is about to critique Moses. So it's, it's easy for us to kind of just skip that part, but God has done some miraculous thing in Moses, and yet Jethro is about to critique him. So he says this, Moses, what are you doing is not good. It's not like Moses was sinning. It's not like Moses was really delaying justice. It's not like Moses was doing anything bad. It's just he was doing something that was only good but not the best that he could have done. He was settling for something a little bit less. And also, in a way, he was neglecting something in his areas of leadership. And his father-in-law was really pointing this out to him. So here's, here's what Jethro says. So he says, what you are doing is not good. Then you move towards 18. So the people will wear themselves out, and you will wear, them, you will wear yourselves out. This is just too much for one person to, bury, to, carry, to, to carry this burden. You are doing something that is not good. Uh, it could be better. Here's, here's how. So he's going to proceed a little bit to tell him how to do better. But he asks, he pokes us, and this is, this is a, a poke that all leaders need to hear. Why are you doing this alone? Most leaders tend to lone wolf it. They live on an island. They isolate themselves. They are the only one. And his father-in-law says, look, you're on an island. Why are you doing this? You're going to wear yourself out as well as the people. I remember being in seminary, and you have to go to preaching lab. You write your, your sermon, you, you, you spend a lot of time, because like, it's not like in church where you have to edit your sermon as much. You, you edit, you refine it, you make sure you pick the best illustration, you make sure you pick the best transition sentence and how to turn the phrase and all of this. And you go into this preaching lab, and they record you. They give you a DVD afterwards. And as you're preaching, in front of your professors and in front of your colleagues, other pastors that you will... It's, 
you know, as soon as you get to spend time with in the future and you preach before them. There's a sense of butterflies in your stomach. You're like, man, I hope I don't tank this. Uh, I hope I, I, don't, I don't drop the ball. I hope I, I don't take things out of context. And when you're done preaching, you, you think, I've done a really good job. I've, I think I know this one. And then here comes the critique, left and right. You did this wrong, you did this wrong, this could have been better. And then you learn to develop really thick skin to ignore a lot of it. <laughs> so the more talented you are, the less likely you want to hear a critique, right? The more talented you are, the less likely you want to listen to what people have to say. And it becomes really hard for you to receive a critique very well. And it shows really where your heart is. Because the more talented you are, every critique is a personal attack against your character, not what you're doing. And oftentimes, those critiques is really meant for your own personal growth, not an attack on you as a person. So I want, us to, I want to encourage us to just to turn on and to listen in. When someone is giving us a critique, but more importantly, when someone gives us a corrective, a constructive correction, because it shows that they really care for us. They want, it, they want it to benefit us. So the next point I have is that there's a constructive correction that takes place in verse 19 through 23. A Korean critique is something that's done in front of people. Uh, when you don't do something in front of them, you're talking behind their back. And oftentimes, that's not a really caring critique. That's just stabbing at that person's character and not really meant to help them. But when you really care about someone, you speak it in front of them, just like Jethro is speaking in front of Moses. He doesn't do this behind his son's back. He doesn't do this in front of all the different leaders. He's speaking directly to Moses himself, and he gives him this correction. Constructive correction is actually really rare. Oftentimes, you see people give empty critique, and they walk away. They kind of like mic drop, and they leave, right? There's no, there's no help at all. Just they're critiquing something. For example, when I first started preaching um, in a Vietnamese church, so you did this. And you stand there, it's a no-no. It's a disrespect. You're disrespecting everyone in the congregation. So the critique was, when someone saw me do this and I was preaching like this, they would tell me, hey, like, you might not understand this, what you're doing, but you're actually offending everyone that is elderly in the congregation. You're showing them of no respect. So for us, that's not a bad thing, right? It's not something that you're sinning. It's not something that you're doing bad. But you're also hurting the opportunity to share the gospel. So I, I don't do this anymore when I preach. I want to so bad because my natural tendency is here and stand here. I like my hands in my pocket. But I don't. It's just to hear that critique, to listen to it. So when someone gives you that constructive correction, lean in, listen, because they care enough about you to even give you a reason and how to do something and how to make those corrections. So avoid our, our natural tendency to, to ignore, to avoid, to just like, oh, man, here's that, here's that person again, and to walk away in a different direction. But to lean in. They might care about you. They might love you. And also, more importantly, it's more likely than not it's a blessing from God that we're choosing to ignore and choosing to, to see what God's love is. So look in verse, verse uh, 19. Now obey my voice. So those who don't have a good mother-in-law, father-in-law relationship, it's like, oh man, here we go again, right? We hear, it's like, ah, oh, here's that obey my voice again. But that's not the case with Moses. Moses has a really good relationship with his father. 
his father-in-law. And now he's listening and he's like, hey, I, I need to listen. So Jethro tells him, obey my voice and I will give you this advice. So what, what was the advice? The advice is something we want to see a little bit later, but he says that, and God will be with you. So it's easy for us to, to kind of miss this point. Jethro is, he, we're not sure if he's a believer yet, but he has some wisdom. And oftentimes we think that the world outside of the church doesn't have something to offer to us. Someone who is like, it's not a believer, it's like there's no, there's no need to listen to them at all. No need to give them any type of attention. But we don't know if Jethro is, is, is a believer or not. However, we do know that God is giving him some type of wisdom. And I think we don't have to apply it, but we need to listen, to hear him out. Because if we don't hear him out, what are the chances of them hearing us out when we need to share the gospel with them? I'm not saying to listen to the world's advice, but I'm saying give them an opportunity to speak so that we can share the good news with them. I remember when we were, Juan and I, we were leaving and packing our car to go out uh, to do an errand. And there's this, uh, this security camera guy. He's been ringing our doorbell like every day. And we already have security cameras at home with the doorbell and all of this, right? He keeps ringing our doorbell and I'm like, what's this guy want? So one day he caught us as we were leaving and he said something that really stuck with me. He goes, how do you expect someone to listen to you if you don't give them an opportunity to speak to you? And I stuck. I was like, he get it, and I didn't get it. Uh, security guy got me. He got me good. He made me think about that on a whole drive uh, to where, whatever we were doing that day. But here Moses listens to Jethro. Um, Jethro really has a genuine love and respect for his son his son-in-law, and he says something really interesting. He says, and God be with you. He's not, he's not saying that uh, what I'm saying is from God. He's really telling Moses, hey, if this is true, go inquire of God and see if this is, this is a good thing, this is a God thing, this is God's will for you to do this. So he gives this, this correction. He goes, um, he proceeds on to really change the way he does things. Look in verse 20. He warns them about, uh, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the law, and you will make them known the way in which they must walk and must do. So Jethro's correction is really threefold. The first is an educational change. The second is a structural change. And the third is a hierarchical change. So the educational change uh, really takes place when he's telling them, go teach the people God's word. Go teach the people God's law and God's command. And we're, we're thinking, wait, Exodus 18 when does the Ten Commandments come? Exodus 20. So what law, what statutes is, is he supposed to teach God's people? Well, God has already given the, the law and the statutes even before the formal, written form of it in Exodus 20. So he, he's, you think about it. How did, how did Abraham walk righteously with God? How did Noah walk righteously with God? How did all these other people prior to that walk righteously with God. I mean, you have Job, most likely could be before all of this, um, and he walked righteously with God. So we know that God has given the law somewhere in between, somewhere way before. But I think it's this. I think it's when they spent time in Israel, I mean, they spent time in Egypt for those 400 years, they stopped hearing God's word, hearing God's law. They forgot it. So Moses is there to remind them of what God's word and God's law is so that they would know how to live and how to walk. Then we see a structural change that occurs in verse 
21 to 22. So now he says, look, you are, you are supposed to select people of God who are supposed to walk alongside to help you. Look what the characteristics are. Um, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and hate bribes, and then place them as leaders. So he's changing something. Able men, men who are willing to do this. Men who fear God, men who have wisdom. In Proverbs 1, 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So they have a, a wisdom that is from above. Men who are trustworthy and hate bribes. Men who have integrity. Who don't steal even if there's a penny from the church. A penny from the people. A lot of it kind of sounds like the characteristics of how we select a pastor, how we select an elder inside of a church. So if you look in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, or look in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, Titus says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint leaders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers and are open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for, for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So these leaders are someone who is walking in fear of God, have close relationship with God, of integrity, of character, of a willingness to lead. Oftentimes we see people who have all of these things, but the part they're lacking is willingness. Or they have the willingness, but they lack the character. It has to be both and. So these leaders will be those who are leading over thousands of hundreds and of tens. And they are supposed to help Moses lead and judge over the, the more simple matter, matters that aren't too complex. As they become more complex, then Moses is the one who really hears them out and to judge those disputes. And then lastly, the hierarchical change. You see the groups of tens, hundreds, and thousands, right? So there is it's a leader amongst each of those to really help Moses do this. And it's really... An, for the tens, it might not be someone who is the wisest of all, someone who has the most integrity of all, but they have solid character and so on. But when you get to the thousands, this is the wisest of the wise, right? The, the most uh, walking upright, walking in fear of God, walking with such integrity to help Moses carry the burden and to, to help Moses focus on other tasks as a leader. It's easy for Moses to just think about being a judge, but there is so, many, so much more for him to do than just helping judge the people. So then lastly, Father, um, Jethro gives Moses the benefits of, of why he needs to do this. It's really threefold. The first is the division of burden. The second is endurance of leadership. And the third is peace among the people. So the, burden, the division of burden. Ecclesiastes 4, 11 and 12 says this. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's a need to walk together. When you think about it, when Jesus sends out the, the 12 disciples, 
when he sends out the 72, he always sends them out in pairs. It's never alone. So why are we trying to do leadership alone and try to burden all, carry all the burden of responsibility? And then he says that there's going to be an endurance in leadership. You're, you're going to survive more. So in verse 23, so you will in, be able to endure. Um, as we know, Moses led these people for the next 30-something years in the wilderness. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. Imagine seeing sand and dirt every day. Imagine eating the same meal every day for those years. The people got real grumpy at him. Uh, it's like, again, quail and manna, again? You know, They have so many complaints against him. But yet, he endured in all of that because he really listened to his father's advice. And he led and he was able to endure in the ministry. And I think also in that, he was equipping the people. He was equipping the leaders. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14 says this. So Solomon was known as the wisest man, right? He, he asked for something that most people didn't ask. He asked for wisdom. Obviously, he didn't live it all out, right? But near the end of his life, we see in Ecclesiastes, there was a shift that occurs. So in Ecclesiastes, it says this. Besides being wise, the preacher, that is King Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and upright he wrote words of truth. Words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firm, fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd from God. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Make of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon, at the end of his life, he says this, there's going to be endless books and for you to study, endless things for you to, uh, to learn. I think about it, if you Google one topic, you're going to see pages and pages and pages of search results. You're not going to be able to study at all. You can go down into any rabbit hole really quickly, but he tells them, focus on the Word of God. And this is what he says, fear God and keep His commandments. This is what really matters. So I think when, whenever Moses was teaching the people, he taught them to fear the Lord and to keep and to walk in His Word so that they would be able to lead the next generation. And lastly, it says that you have peace among the people. The people will have their justice heard, their dispute heard. You know, when, when you're standing in line at the DMV and you're already angry, but the fact that they help you, you're like, oh, finally I get my whatever license or my tag and registration. And you walk home, you, there's a sense of, of burden lifted, right? There's a peace when you leave. When I started this church planting journey, I thought I knew a lot. Um, I came in pretty arrogant. Uh, I, I started ministry in 2008, so when we started the plants, I went through the assessment process in 2020. I was like, I have 12 years of ministry under my belt. And we had to go through this assessment. Um, so the pre-assessment consists of this. There's five references. After that, they have a 360-degree uh, review, which is, consists of six people answering 180-something question about you. And then, after that, you go through and you spend two days where they assess the way you preach, what is your vision, how, how are you going to cast it, how evangelistic are you, how do you handle finances, and, and that's just the beginning of the church planting journey. 
And then after that, you spend six months for them to tell you how you should plant. What must you do so that you can become successful as a planter? Because prior to all of this, church planting success rate was so low, 15% survived. Within five years, the, the 85% would just close their doors. So it, there's a process that needs to go through. There's a refining. There's a correction. There's a method to the madness. And it's... I, I have to be honest, I, I didn't want to listen to it. I didn't want to apply it. And I was like, man, whatever, whatever I'm doing is not working. So I need to lean in. I need to listen. So this, they really do care when they give you these corrections. It's because they care about you. They care about the, the growth of the church. So when someone provides you with constructive correction, listen. They love you enough to take the time to give you the correction. They love you enough to give you what you need to hear so that you can thrive. So take the time to really reflect on it and then apply the correction. So as we wrap up with the final point, there's a uh, circumspective compliance in verse 24 through 27. So Moses listened to his father-in-law in in verse 24. He, He could have just, Moses would have been the one person that didn't have to listen to his father-in-law. Think about this for a second. So what has happened so far in Moses' life before Jethro comes up? Moses saw God at the burning bush. He spoke to God through a bush that should have burnt away. Uh, he, helped, he was an agent of the ten plagues in Egypt. He saw the Red Sea split open. The people walked through in dry land, and the Red Sea collapsed and killed all the Egyptians. God was with him already, and Moses still listened. If, out of all the people who, had, who should have had pride, and not listen was Moses. But yet he stopped and he listened. He listened to what his father-in-law said because he knows his father-in-law loves him and he cares about his well-being. And then verse 25 and 26, he puts it into practice. He probably contemplated, probably prayed, is this correct? Is this the right way of, of applying it? Is this the right instruction for me to, to lead as a leader of God's people? And then finally he really applied his father's instruction and he put it into practice. So you look in verse 26, he did, 25 and 26, he did all that his father-in-law said, and he, he applied it the way his father-in-law said it. And then verse 27, then Moses let his father-in-law depart. We're thinking like, fine, let's kick this father-in-law out, right? It's not an angry departure. This was, I think what he was doing was letting his father-in-law stay and sought his approval. Did I make the adjustment the way that you thought was right, in the way that you thought was best? And then finally, when his father-in-law was content, and when they were both content with this, his father-in-law departed. They were both happy when they left. I remember when I was mentoring this, this young man. Um, he was in his 20s. Brilliant scholar, uh, linguistically very talented. But the one area he lacked was love of people. He was in his ivory tower, but he couldn't be with the people. My critique of him was, hey, you need to be with the people. You need to love the people and walk with the people. Don't, you don't have to be the, the smartest person in the room, the most talented in the room, but if you can love the people well, they are with you. Um, he didn't listen. Um, and I kind of reap some of that consequence of that action as well. So when people love you, lean in. When they invest time in you, listen and apply it. And at the end of the day, as a believer, our responsibility is to give the critique, give the corrective instruction, but it's up to them to apply it or not. 
But if we see what's right, what is wrong, we don't tell them what is right, we are not doing our part. When we see our brother and sister stumbling in sin and we don't tell them, we are not doing our part. The church at Corinth, they saw this young man who was sinning against God. Such a bad sin that even the world around him would not do it. But the church didn't say anything about it. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he didn't address that young man. He confronted the church. So our part as a believer, as a body, is to make that correction, to care enough about one another. So conclusion, when we receive criticism, we either fall in one of two camps. Either we are prideful, we don't want to hear it, we think we are too good for it, or we take the second approach, and we lean in with humility, and we listen to what they have to say. They might be right, they might be wrong, but at least we are listening. And then if they are, if they are caring, they will give us corrective instruction, constructive correction, and we can learn to apply it as well. You know, that's the gospel. You think about it. God tells us that we are sinners. The holy God, sinners standing before him, he's critiquing us that we are not living the way that he's designed us to live. But he doesn't stop there. He gives his son. His son comes into the world, fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect sinless life. He goes to the cross, bearing the wrath of sin for sinners, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He doesn't leave you there. He gives you a hope and opportunity to come to life. He dies on that cross. He resurrected on the third day. If you believe in the Son, you have life. If you apply comply to God's correction, you have life. So that's with us. If we love Christ, we lean in, we listen to his correction because he loves us so much more than we could ever imagine. So would you please stand with me as I pray? Dear gracious God, as sinners, we are prideful. We don't want to listen to your Holy Spirit when he convicts us of our sin. We don't want to listen to the people that you place in our lives that care enough about us to speak truth into us when we are wrong or when we are not doing the best that would please you, Lord. Help us to be humble enough to listen. Help us to be caring enough to listen to the people that loves us and that speaks truth into our lives. Help us to live in a way that glorifies you and honors you. Help us to be a body of believers that edifies one another so that we can walk in this world of sanctification together so that when we meet you, Lord, that we can look back at our lives and, and have no regrets because we have done the best that we could living a life that is sanctified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.